Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. Wow. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. I mean, it's still the new year to me. I'm not one to take the stressful requirement of jumping into all my New Year's habits and New Year's goals right on January 1st. Actually, I'm usually still celebrating Christmas through Epiphany on January 6th. We celebrate all 12 days of Christmas in our family. Thank you very much. But... I am so excited for the upcoming year, and I'm excited about the guests that we have planned and the content that we have planned for the Simple Brand Podcast. I'm looking forward to all we have in store for you in 2022. But before we even jump into all the new content, all the new guests, all the new lessons, we're taking a quick recap and we're revisiting some of the standout lessons that we learned in 2021. We had... 34 guests on the podcast in 2021, and we learned lots of valuable lessons from them around creating simple experiences for your people and creating simple experiences for your customers. But there's a handful of standout lessons that I want to share with you in a couple of recap episodes. And this episode right here focuses on those lessons around simple experiences for your people. The other recap episode focuses on those lessons around simple experiences for your customers. If you haven't already listened to that recap episode, then head over to the podcast and check out episode 56, the 2021 recap, lessons on providing a simple customer experience. But in this episode, we're going through and we're playing a handful of clips from some of the standout guests and some of their lessons that I think are really going to help you understand what it means to create a simple experience for your people. And if you haven't heard the episodes with these guests already, then after this, go back and dig into them. You'll be able to get even more in-depth lessons. Are you ready for the recap? All right, let's get to it. The first lesson we're going to hear today comes from Siegeling Gale's head of insights, Brian Rafferty. Brian was the one who led the charge for Siegeling Gale's ninth edition of their world's simplest brand study that they released back in December. Now, when Brian and I talked, we talked around the brands that provide the simplest experiences to customers. But We also talked about how simplicity plays a role in the employee experience. And listen, I will die on the hill saying that you can't provide a fully simple experience to your customers if you're not providing simplicity to your own employees. But it's not just me that says this. There's research that backs this up. And Brian explains some of that research from their previous studies. Let's hear what Brian has to say around why providing simplicity to your employees is so important. 
Well, it's interesting you ask that because you know a number of years ago we did a study um, actually leveraging the the same sample we were using to do the the world simplest brand study to look at, at simplicity in the workplace, and then what we found is that there was a huge pretty much sort of one-on-one correlation between people being engaged with their employer, meaning, you know, brand champions, if you will, of their of their employers, and them finding that actually the workplace was simple to work in. Um, and then we saw a big difference between sort of people who saw their workplace as complex versus saw their workplace as simpler in how easy they found it to promote innovative ideas, you know, how likely they were to stay, how likely they were to, to recommend, you know, the place as a, as a place to work. So I do think there is a big connection between, you know, simplicity within the workplace and employee retention, employee you know, satisfaction, whatever, you know, metric you want to use on, on the employee base. I do think that that's a different, I mean, obviously it goes again back to the experience that I think, you have to take a different lens on the experience than just thinking about you know brands, if you will, trying to to sell things to to consumers. Because I think in the in the workplace, it is about accountability of, of management, transparency of decision making. Obviously, today more than ever, also uh, you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and belonging. So I think that the dimensions, if you will, of simplicity in the workplace are a bit different than the dimensions of simplicity in a in a consumer experience. So after hearing Brian explain that, we know that delivering simplicity across your entire organization is super valuable. So that begs the question, do leaders actually go out of their way to create complexity in their organizations? No, at least most don't, right? So how does complexity happen? How does complexity creep in? Well, that's something that I discussed with Lisa Bodell in episode 38. In this clip, Lisa explains just how complexity happens and how it happens over time. Let's take a listen. We create the beast that we become a slave to. That's usually what happens. And it's complexity is it's typically created, I think, with the best of intentions, ironically, meaning, you know, people are trying to move faster. They're trying to get something done. It's easier to build on top of something uh, than starting from scratch. So, you know, we often do it without realizing it. The the hard reason why people want to simplify, but um, they don't is really a lot of the stuff that happens to us every day is self-imposed and unnecessary. And it's driven out of fear and need for control. Let me give you an example. Why do we CC so many people on an email? Why do we invite so many people to meetings or feel obligated to go to them? Why do we have so many steps in a decision-making process? And a lot of that comes down to control and fear. And if we as leaders can start to take away that fear, to take away that need to control, we would simplify and streamline a lot of the things that we do and realize they're just not necessary. Okay. So now that you understand just how complexity can creep into your organization, then it's on you as the leader to ensure that your culture goes in the opposite direction. It's on you as the leader to drive toward a change to simplicity. And that's done through certain decisions and especially certain behaviors. So Lisa Bodell goes on to explain this further on what you as a leader can do to drive toward this change of simplicity. First of all, you know, the reason that COVID has been a positive influence 
um, is that it really has forced us to challenge the way or the assumptions around the way that we work. So just before COVID, everyone complained, there's no way we can work virtually. It's just not yeah. going to happen because yeah. a lot of that had to do with trust and control. And guess what? Right. When you're presented with a burning platform, boy, can you make things happen? So what it told us and it allowed us to do because we had no other choice was to challenge the rules of how we work. Is it really necessary? And we realized a lot of it wasn't. So I think for leaders going forward, there's a couple of things they can do. One, they can um, they can kill stupid rules at work. And that's a really easy thing to do is ask people, what are the rules that hold them back? And we should get rid of. And you'll come up with a lot of things. And then the second thing is, is have the leaders exemplify those behaviors that allow people to simplify. Because if the leader doesn't do it, Matt, people won't do it. So like, for example, when leaders say, well, just say no to meetings or just don't do a report if you think it's frivolous, but the leader still asks for that report and the leader still attends all the meetings, no one's going to do it. So, yeah, we have to actually give people kind of some frameworks or exercises to teach them what to get rid of and be empowered. And then leaders really have to exemplify it because, you know, we look to the leaders to signal the behaviors that are expected. So there you go. Creating a culture of simplicity starts at the top and it starts with your own behaviors as a leader in ensuring and instilling that those behaviors are perpetuated throughout all your employees in delivering simple experiences to each other. Because keep in mind, when it comes to a culture, a culture really shines through only through the interactions among the employees to each other. And that's something that David Burkus talks about in episode 23. And David goes on to share just exactly how you can create that kind of culture that instills your organization's desired values throughout all employee interactions. And if you think about where we are today in 2022, most companies are either still remote or on a hybrid basis. So being able to instill all that, to being able to instill the values into your culture is not that easy when not everyone is working together on site. Thankfully, David's lessons help us understand just how to do that. If you haven't already begun to build these things, and I would pay attention to as a leader, what we call um, shared understanding, shared identity, and a sense of psychological safety. Those are the big three in study after study that show that not not only for teams as a whole, but specifically to virtual teams, these are the elements we need in play. And if we can take care of these things, a lot of the other logistics, like what project management software to use, take care of themselves. Um, But let me define those real quick. Um, Shared understanding is the sense that everyone on the team is aware of the knowledge, skills, abilities, preferences, the context people are working in. It's how well do we understand each other? And this has a bunch of different um, ramifications, right? The first, let's just talk about context and calendars. Everybody's working from a different setup right now. I mean, if you're working, if you're on a team that's sort of a national, even inside one country like the United States, 
the the available the openness of different states is so varied right now that everybody's working from different scenarios right some yeah. people like i'm i'm lucky enough to be recording this in about a 10 foot by 10 foot room in the basement of my house my kids are at school uh, so it's quiet i can focus etc other people like bought a folding screen at home depot and stretched it across the corner of their dining room and they use that to hide from their kids that are zoom schooling on the other end of the table right Two very, very different contexts. And as a leader, like I need to make sure that the whole team understands that because I have different, I have different expectations of availability from that parent that is also trying to, to distance learn their kids in the middle of the day, because that's when the school demands they be on the zoom call. Like I'm okay. I I can trust that you'll get your stuff done. That's different than sort of the, the single childless person who is living it up in an apartment by themselves with free Uber eats deliveries and all sorts of like that. It's a totally different environment. And I need to be aware of that. And the other thing that happens often with managing a remote team is that if you don't have shared understanding, people don't know whose strengths are are what and whose weaknesses are what. And so they make every request for help to you, the leader, right? They, they Anytime they need anything, it goes to you. So you start feeling like I'm not managing a team, I'm managing 10 individual relationships. And that's a problem that shared understanding takes care of because once I know who's really fantastic at this program, right? Or who I can rely on for questions about this project, then I can go directly to that person like I did in a co-located environment because we had all of these times that built shared understanding, right? So that's shared understanding. Shared identity is that sense that I'm on the actual, that the team is my team, that I draw my identity from that team. I think in every organization, shared identity is important. It's just different here. We talk about silos and politics and turf wars in a lot of organizations before they were often functional, right? Like almost every large organization I've ever worked with, you can count on there being tension between marketing and legal, right? It just always happens, right? Because marketing is how much can we get away with? And legal is you can't say that on TV, right? Um, So so there's always that. sole purpose is to just simply say (laughs) no. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. So that was a functional silo, right? A functional. Well, I think as we move into this work from anywhere world, we're going to be headed to a place where who's co-located around whom is going to be the new us versus them. The people who are choosing to be in the office more are going to start thinking of, of the other people who are in the office more as us and the rest of their team is them and vice versa, by the way. So this is a big problem that making sure as a leader, you're paying attention to make sure that your team knows we're working together on this project. We know the mission, we know the vision of it. We know how our work is interdependent of each other. And as a result, we need to, to come together and build that sense of identity that will skyrocket the effectiveness of your team. And then the very last one I said was psychological safety, which is just that feeling of mutual trust and respect, that feeling that I can express myself fully, that I can take risks and not be punished um, as long as I share like the the learnings of even those failures, right? Um, it's the extent to which I feel like I have to cover up any of my mistakes or if all of that is just sort of failing forward and, and learning. This one's more important, to be honest with you, in, in any organization, but in a remote organization, the, the part of psychological safety that comes more important is this idea that I feel free to speak up, that I feel free to express dissent. I know a lot of leaders of remote teams, of newly remote teams for the past year, that the last time someone publicly disagreed with them was in an in-person meeting in February, 2020, right? Because it's just, it's hard to speak up on a Zoom call. And so we need to be more deliberate about cultivating that dissent, cultivating task 
focused conflict that makes the end product better and making sure that everybody knows that even if you disagree with me, like I still respect you and I still honor your contribution. I'm better because you disagree with me, not everybody just fall in line and agree with me, which is unfortunately what can happen too often when we're trying to run an efficient, quote unquote, efficient virtual meeting is we end up depriving the team of that friction that creates a better product. While we're talking about culture, I want to take a quick pop culture break. Did you know that the movie City Slickers is 31 years old this year? Wow. Does that make you feel old? It should. Well, wait, why am I talking about City Slickers? Well, if you've seen the movie, and if you haven't, you should. If you've seen the movie, at some point during the cattle drive, Billy Crystal and Jack Palance, 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 I think it's Jack Palance, right? They're talking about the meaning of life. And Jack's character, Curly, tells Billy Crystal's character, Mitch, that the meaning of life comes down to one thing. Just one thing. You see, Curly based all his decisions and based his life on his one thing. His main purpose. And I think too many businesses make the mistake of trying to have too many priorities, too many focus areas. Here's our purposes. And that's one of the things that makes their culture complex. That's one of the things that lets complexity creep into their culture. In episode 34, I got to talk with Carla Johnson about her book and her lessons on rethinking innovation. And in her lessons, she talks about those leaders that are able to create a true culture of innovation by focusing on their one thing, their purpose, their North Star. And it's when you're able to focus on that North Star, that purpose, that it makes it a lot simpler for you and your employees to be able to make their decisions and make their actions and all their behaviors behind that one purpose. In this discussion, that purpose was around innovation. This ability to create a, I call it a culture of original thinkers, people who, um, who rethink what they do in order to do it better. There's a couple of things that need to be in place if you are the you know executive in charge, you know whether you're the chief marketing officer, you're the CEO of the entire organization, or you know HR person who's looking at corporate culture, is that the one thing that I've seen that makes the most innovative companies actually this innovative at high levels, consistently, you know that they're able to sustain this over long periods of time, and and I'm talking decades, not just a few years things like that, you know, a few quarters and and financial returns is that how they approach business is first based on purpose, as in what's the bigger problem and problem we're trying to solve and contribution that, that we're making to the world around us. And that's why you see companies like Netflix and Google and Zappos um, and Apple are these iconic, innovative brands because their very foundational platform is based on purpose. And purpose is not your mission. It's not your vision. You know, it's not some of these other traditional brand platform things. A brand purpose is a very simple, succinct, I say a six to 10 word sentence 
that describes the change, the, the difference that you're making in a world. So, you know, like for Google, it's organizing the world's information. And that's something that everybody at every level in, in you know, every organization can understand because it's so simple and so specific and so to the point. Now, it, it does two things for the entire employee population. One, it gives them a North Star to continually point themselves to. So people at Google, I'll just use this as an example, when they ask themselves, okay, if, if this is a new project or a new initiative or a new fill in the blank, does this help us fulfill our purpose of organizing the world's information? And that should be a pretty clear cut yes or no. And if there's any question, you know, as, as you move along and, and, you know, like scope creep, there's also like bleed. So it, it points people in the same direction, but, you know, things get fuzzy in your day-to-day operation. It also gives you something against which you can ask others the question in your organization as requests come out so that you have the power to say no. So we see this a lot in sales and marketing. Sales will come to a marketing team and say, hey, I need this, 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 and it's critical. And we've got to do this campaign, event, launch, you know, whatever that may be. And if you have a, a brand purpose and this request doesn't directly support that purpose, that's a filter against which you can say no. And I, I think that's that's one of the most um, empowering or powerful things for a brand is to get people to say no more often to the wrong things so they have the space and capacity to say yes to more of the right things. And I think that's that's incredibly powerful for a brand. Now, the second thing, it's, it's not enough just to have that brand purpose statement. The next thing is that you have to have the values in place that support the ability to deliver the behavior that delivers on that brand purpose. So if um, Google, and I don't off the top of my head, I can't tell you Google's values, but I guarantee that what they are, those behaviors ensure that as employees, when you exhibit those, that you're able to deliver on that brand purpose of organizing the world's information. And the values have to be taken incredibly seriously because this is what you need to be able to hire, fire, reward and reprimand against. You have to believe in that purpose so much that you that that's how you look at the behavior in um, when you hire people or do you believe in these values enough that you would let someone go over it? You know, do you reward them? Do you say that's not the behavior that we support here and you, you know, you need to adjust how you approach things? Because in order to deliver on that innovation, you have to have the purpose and the behavior in place to actually deliver on it. And I tell you, I can't tell, um, I couldn't give you a percentage, but I'm sure you see it too, Matt, the number of people who one of their values is innovation. And it's also probably neck and neck with the number of times they say, that's not how we do things here. Of course. You know, so, so you can have it as, as a value, but in, unless you have the, the protocols in place, to, you know, hire, fire, reward, and reprimand based on it, then you don't truly believe in innovation. After hearing Carla's lessons, I think you've got a pretty good idea on what it takes to create a strong culture by following your one purpose, your North Star. 
Now, Carla also talked about having a culture of innovation as it relates to more innovative companies. And I have to tell you, I say innovation is one of the keys behind delivering simple experiences, both to your customers and to your employees, because it's that innovation that allows you to understand where things need to change. But it is possible to create a culture of innovation, no matter what type of employees or functional areas you have, not just your innovation team. And that's one of the things that Josh Linkner helped us learn in episode 28. Josh talks about how you can create a culture of innovation and how innovation isn't just from the big technological changes. It can happen in all of the everyday things. And these everyday little innovations can help really change the culture of your organization. Let's hear how Josh explains it. And what we've learned, uh, a couple of things, it basically it flips the whole premise of innovation upside down. Most of us think that for innovation to really count, it has to be a billion dollar idea or that only certain roles are allowed to be innovative. Like you can only be creative if you're wearing a lab coat or a hoodie. But the truth is that we all are creative as human beings. That, that's our natural state. And, and the human mind, we're sort of hardwired to be creative. And so that's what I tried to set out is how can we help normal people, you know, all walks of life, careers, et cetera, tap into the same superpower and really reframe who, who can be the face of innovation. Instead of the face of innovation being Elon Musk or some other tech billionaire, why can't it be you and me and us normal folks? Because when we get creative, better outcomes follow. And I think most people likely feel like they're not creative or innovative. So how can we help those normal people, those everyday people understand how they are creative or understand how to be more creative? Well, you're exactly right. And to me, it breaks my heart a little bit. I mean, you've never met an uncreative four-year-old. Uh, right. But over time, our you know, well-intentioned parents and, and schools and teachers and bosses, they kind of beat it out of us. And we're so worried not to make any mistakes <clears throat> that we stop taking any chances. So what I did in the book is try to lay out a very deliberate path on how we can actually cultivate and develop those skills. The good news is that uh, creativity is much more like your weight than your height. For me, as try as I may, I'm probably not going to grow a foot by next month. But my weight, I can control based on, on my exercise and nutrition, et cetera. And, and creativity is the same thing. It's a skill that all of us can cultivate and develop and grow. It's kind of like a muscle. You can either you know exercise and build it, or you can let it get weak with atrophy. That is exactly what it is. And, and in the book, I actually lay out, it's really a very practical field guide. So there's a lot of fun stories and it's inspiring and all that, but there's like very deliberate, like what do you do when you wake up in the morning to get more creative? And what we've learned are a couple of cool things. One is it really doesn't take years of study or millions of dollars or huge sacrifices because it's our natural state. We can reconnect with it pretty quickly. Um, you may have heard of the 10,000 hour rule, which was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, right. which in the game of telephone, it really, really was originally, you know, what does it take to be a master? But it got to... Uh, misconstrued mis, uh, that, that it takes 10,000 hours basically to learn a new skill. But in the book, I actually talk about something called the 20-hour rule, which was popularized by a guy named Josh Kaufman. Basically, that says this, if you want to get not masterful, but pretty darn good at just about any skill, not brain surgery, obviously, but, but creativity is certainly one. If you have 20 hours of deliberate focus and practice, you actually can get pretty good. 
Like you can learn a couple chords on a guitar and learn to strum a song. You can you can learn to you know a, a, enough knowledge to be dangerous in just about any field. So what I really challenge people to do is just to invest 20 hours. It doesn't have to be all at once. You don't have to take time off work. It could be over a period of months. But a little bit of extra focus, deliberate focus and practice can yield monumental results. And the cool thing is that creativity is a high leverage activity if you scale it. In other words, if you get 5% more creativity, your, your career might be 100% better. If you get 5% more creative, your, your relationships might be 600% better. And so in investing and growing your creative skill just a little bit can yield a, a, a completely disproportionately good set of results. If you want to have a culture of simplicity in your organization, then you have to ensure that all of your team members have that sense of innovation, that they're able to innovate to stay ahead in all that they do, because innovation is one of the key drivers of simplicity. One of the other key drivers of simplicity is empathy. If you want to have a culture of simplicity, then you need a culture of empathy among all of your employees. And I actually talked about that in episode 41. And in episode 41, we actually learned about how to instill empathy in your business from, well, from me, Matt Lyles. Because if you want a strong team, if you want an engaged team, that can come through from the power of empathy. Let's hear what I had to say about that. The first thing you need to instill in your business is a culture of empathy. And it starts with you. Look, empathy isn't just some touchy-feely, emotional, psychobabble term all about getting in touch with your feelings and everybody else's feelings. Really, empathy is your ability to see the world from the perspective of others. And it can be one of the most valuable tools in your leadership toolbox. The highest performing companies also top the list of the most empathetic companies. In fact, stats show that empathy is more important to business success than it has ever been. The UK consulting firm, The Empathy Business, they analyzed the internal culture of 170 companies on major financial indexes. And in 2016, they found that the top 10 companies on their 2016 Empathy Index report increased in value more than twice as much as the bottom 10, and they generated 50% more earnings defined by market capitalization. So we established that the top companies recognize that a culture of empathy is key in recruiting, engaging, and retaining top talent. But just because the top companies have figured out how to do this doesn't mean you can't. You can. And while it does take some work, it's actually pretty simple. It starts with answering these questions. Who are my employees? What do they care about? How can I care about what they care about? What do they need? How can I help them get what they need? You see, you need to care about what your employee cares about, and your employee needs to believe that you care. You've got to deliver an experience that shows your employees that you understand their needs. And the only way you're going to truly understand their needs is to see the world through their eyes, from their perspective, not yours. Theoretically walking a mile in their shoes and understanding what they feel throughout their day. 
If your employees ever tell you what they care about or what they need, consider yourself lucky because most of them won't bother to tell you. But it's your job to find out and to know. To get there, you have to really understand them. You have to talk to them. You have to ask them what it's like to be them each day, what it's like going through all the processes and procedures they go through to get their jobs done. More importantly, you have to observe them and observe what it's like to be them. You have to look at what you can do to help solve their problems and make their lives better. You have to be able to understand what resources do they need that you can provide and what barriers do they have in their roles that you can remove or at least minimize. When you instill empathy into your employee experience, you transform your focus from managing to helping and serving. You realize that your employees are real people. And do you know what real people want the most? They want to feel valued. When your employees believe that you care, they feel valued. When they feel valued, they trust you. When they trust you, they'll be loyal to you and more engaged in their role, all through the power of empathy. Once you instill empathy into your organization, then that means that you'll have the ability to have empathy for everyone that you're leading. And all the leaders under you will be able to have empathy for the people that they lead as well. So that means that you and your leadership will be able to have stronger emotional intelligence, but you'll also be able to have a level of empathy that now allows you to tailor your management style to your people. Because if you're empathizing with your people, you'll be able to recognize that each one of the individual people in your team have different desires, have different goals, have different challenges, are motivated by different things, have preferences for how they like to be rewarded, have preferences for how they like to interact with others, have preferences for how they go about their work that makes them more effective in their role. And when you reach this level of leadership, this is what Michael Solomon refers to as bespoke leadership, bespoke management. And he talks about that in episode 46. It used to be a culture where you could say, the boss could say, I want that on my desk at 3.30. And the employee said, yes, sir. And they did that. And the truth is, that's not the workplace anymore, and that doesn't work for 10Xers. And interestingly, Gen Z and millennials, who are not all 10Xers, have very similar qualities. And some of the things that we talk about relating to 10Xers also apply to them. So as you're saying, the manager needs to have the EQ and needs to understand how to personalize and customize to other 10Xers, but they also need to be able to do that for these younger generations. It's a ridiculous notion that when pick a company, Fang Company X hires a mid-level engineering role and they hire somebody who's 30 years old and single on the one hand, and then they hire somebody who, for the same level role who's 32 years old and has three kids at home, that they may, they offer the same package. Because those two people want very different things out of their job package. One of them might be thrilled for all the on-campus perks and staying and working out in the gym and playing on the basketball court on the campus, and the other one wants to get out of there. 
And the fact that there's no consideration when those offers are being made illustrative of the issues and the transition that needs to go on, that needs to go on right now. And that's also not just about making the offer, that's about how people are managed. Right. And that to kind of go a little bit deeper into that, you've actually created a tool that helps companies and their candidates when they're recruiting and hiring. So a lot of times people would generally ask the question about salary, no matter what age you are, no matter what your personal life situation is, okay, what salary do you want? Whereas you've taken a tool that goes a lot further and a lot deeper that helps hiring managers better understand what's important to their candidates. Talk to me about that. I'm so glad you went there. So the tool that we built is called a lifestyle calculator. And as you just said, we started a third business that I should mention, which is called 10X Ascend. In that company, we are compensation negotiation advisors. So people come to us with job offers in hand, and then we help them negotiate their job offers. And the thing that's crazy is the only thing any company asks an employee, as you just said, before they make an offer is what is your comp requirement or what is your salary requirement? And then they offer no choices after that. They just come with a job offer. They don't know very much about what the candidate wants. So what the lifestyle calculator is, is a little tool where the candidate gets 100 points and they get to distribute them among up to 24 different attributes that go into a compensation package and work life. Not all of them are relevant in every instance. There's definitely five or eight of them that don't apply in many instances, but no two people fill them out alike. And the idea that a company is going to make an offer to somebody without having done this homework says to me that they're acting like the employee is a commodity and that all employees are the same. This is not like everybody's a snowflake and you need to customize everything because they're so delicate. It's not about that. It's about your company, you have resources. You're going to have to either offer more or fewer resources to this person. If you understand what they care about, you might be able to offer the right resources and not too much of one thing and not enough of another thing. It is amazing how so many times companies will just have this underlying assumption that everyone is the same. We talk about our customers. We talk about empathizing with our customers and providing a great customer experience based on what customers need. But we have this one assumption that all of our employees, all of our team members, the only thing that they need is a salary and everybody gets the same benefits, the same perks. It's amazing to me. In all this time of doing these negotiations, the only time I've seen a company offer a choice, it was once. A company said, here's one offer with more cash and less equity, and here's another offer with more equity and less cash. I applaud that move so much. That is such a step in the right direction. But imagine if you were making an offer and you were sitting there with the lifestyle calculator and you see that this person really cares about continuing education or personal and professional development. And you have a policy about that. And you haven't told them what your policy is. You haven't told them, hey, you know, you have a budget for 10 grand a year to go to conferences or take classes or whatever the policy is. You didn't know to tell them about it because you didn't ask what do they care about? So, and this, you know, what we're talking about, this is exactly what extends into management. This is how you have to manage now. There's a chapter called the bespoke boss. You can't treat everybody the same. They're not all the same. They have different missions and there's different things that motivate them. And hopefully in the coming years, we'll see this kind of customization, make it into classrooms because we should be teaching our children this way. But in the workplace where there's such a direct relationship to money and power, this transition should happen faster because this is going to save companies money and make them better, stronger companies because they can hire the right people. 
Once you've instilled empathy across your organization, this allows you to take your leadership to a deeper and stronger, but also a little bit scarier level. This is where you have the ability to be vulnerable with your team, to be vulnerable with your people. And when you're vulnerable with your people, you can actually get their help in holding you accountable, holding you accountable to your behavior, holding you accountable to any possible risks, holding you accountable against complacency. And that's something that Lynn Hurstein talks about in episode 49, is creating a culture of being vigilant in order to combat complacency. Because if you and your team are able to combat complacency by staying vigilant, then you'll be able to head off any risks before those risks come to fruition. Let's hear Lynn talk about that. Within your own organization, you have to start thinking about where can those threats come from? And it's not a one point in time activity, right? We've already talked about the fact that those threats can be coming from places that you would never expect them to be coming from. And so you have to you know, institutionalize within your organization and, you know, within your life, within your family, this is just as applicable to, to personal relationships too, is understanding where could those threats come from and making sure you've got eyes on them, right? That's what the restaurant story is all about is, you know, I understand where the threats can come from and I have a way of keeping my eyes on them. So I don't have to worry. Right. And I already know in advance what I'm going to do about it if something happens. And so I'm not sitting there paranoid. I'm just aware. Right. And I'm ready. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what you want to do in an organization. You want to have people that have specific responsibilities for keeping an eye out. You know, some people are obviously, you know, watching your competitors. Some people have to have a specific responsibility for watching out where, you know, places where threats can come from that you don't have competitors today. Where could competitors pop up? What are other industries that could become competitors? Where could threats come from that are environmental or governmental or um, economic? Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that some of the most successful leaders, the best leaders are those that they're able to work with their team to have their eyes on those threats, but they also encourage their team members to say, hey, and also keep your eyes on me as well. I want to continue to be a successful leader Keep your eyes on me and let me know what some of those threats are that might threaten how I approach my leadership and serve my people. Absolutely. In that statement, you're kind of covering, you know, a few different chapters in the book. So on one hand, you have this idea of accountability and transparency, right? Right. And how important it is. So, I, you know, I have what I call the ATV model, accountability plus transparency equals vigilance. Right. So vigilance doesn't just pop out of nowhere. You have to create the environment for it. And if you publicly put yourself out there as to what you stand for and what what you're going to judge be judged on, and then you're transparent about what you do in, in your quest for that, vigilance follows, right? You have to because you put yourself out there. So when a leader puts themselves out there to hold themselves accountable to not only their customers, but also their employees and their internal constituents, and then they're transparent about what they're doing, they make themselves vigilant and they allow the organization to be vigilant. But the other thing you're talking about is giving everybody the autonomy and the, and the discretion to be able to be vigilant on their own, 
right? So, you know, to me, the difference, you know, every organization has, you know, people sitting in a C-suite, but especially you, you work for FedEx, right? You, you've got people that are on the street every day delivering packages. These are the people that you need to be vigilant, right? It's one thing to be vigilant and think that you're being, you know, uh, doing the right things in the C-suite, but you need everybody at, at every level, and especially the ones who are your, you know, front-facing force to your customers to have that ability to recognize things, to vocalize them, to have the autonomy and, dis- and discretion within their jobs to handle things at that level, so important in order to roll that back up to allowing your leadership and your leaders to be vigilant. And when you allow for and even encourage that autonomy, that empowerment, that helps strengthen your culture as well. When employees feel and know that they have that level of empowerment, they are much more loyal to their employer. Oh, absolutely. And even before the loyalty comes engagement, right? So you want your employees to be engaged. You want them to be present in the moment. You want them to you know, be fulfilled and engagement leads to fulfillment, which leads to job satisfaction. You know, I believe there's a study done that shows that, you know, autonomy leads to a 17% increase in engagement and job satisfaction. You know, it's measurable when you give people that leeway to have a say in how they do their jobs, they become more engaged and which leads them to be more satisfied, which leads them to become more loyal. Now, Once you've done all these things to help develop a culture of simplicity and to ensure that you're delivering a simple experience to your employees, there's one more thing that you need to do as a leader, and that's to develop more leaders in the way that you've developed your leadership. In fact, in episode 21, Deanne Turner says that this is actually your responsibility. Your responsibility is to create more leaders. And if you've developed a strong leadership in yourself that delivers simplicity to others, then you'll be able to help develop other leaders to create that same culture of simplicity in their own teams or wherever else they go. Here's how Deanne explains it. Wow, there's so, so, so many things that a leader I mean, it's really actually it's their responsibility. A leader's responsibility is to grow more leaders. And if they're not doing that, then they're really not leading Uh, because whether it's for that organization or uh, just the world in general, we can't we can't make it without more leaders. So that's what a leader does. That's the very definition is they grow more leaders. Uh, And so they're going to do that by setting expectations and making them as clear as possible. And then creating goals around those expectations, holding people accountable to the expectations, and then giving constructive and fruitful feedback about how well those goals were met around those expectations. And that simplifies it. And I know you love things that are simple. I do. (laughs) Uh, And that, that sounds very easy, but I've just described what a leader does. This is their job. And what I found over the course of my career is that people get really involved in whatever their function is that they're leading. And they forget that this is core to their job, because if you do these things well, then the people will lead the function that you're responsible for. Your job is to lead them and they'll lead the function. But what happens is a lot of leaders, you know, I'm the CMO. My job is to come up with the most creative 
marketing solutions for my company. No, your job is to help your team come up with the most creative solutions. And you're going to do that by setting expectations, goals, holding people accountable and giving great feedback. And by the way, of course, celebrating success when it happens. Oh, wow. I really enjoyed going back and recapping some of the biggest lessons we learned from our 2021 guest as it relates to providing simple experiences for your people. And I hope you enjoyed it too. Now, good news. Like I mentioned earlier, I have another 2021 recap episode that focuses all on learning how you can deliver simple experiences to your customers. So head on over to the podcast and check out episode 56 of the Simple Brand Podcast. Now, as we finish recapping 2021, I'm excited about moving forward in 2022. We have lots of guests lined up for 2022 to bring even more lessons to you. Lots of new guests, lots of new authors, lots of new books, all to help you strengthen your organization's brand and even your own personal leadership brand in 2022. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, hit the subscribe button. It's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Emily Morgan. Emily is a keynote speaker, and she's the head of Delegate Solutions, where they provide virtual executive support services and delegation coaching. And Emily's been featured in Forbes, HuffPost, The New York Times, Inc. Magazine, CNBC, and many other outlets. Emily and I talk about how you can better manage your time and your priorities and how you can use the right delegation strategies to free up your time and energy to do more of what you love. Listen, if you're like me, you've likely made some big goals for 2022. And one of the keys to accomplishing your big goals is to learn how to manage your time and effectively delegate the work that isn't tied to those big goals. And Emily's lessons will help you do just that. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Emily's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.